Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 3. It's a most remarkable thing that there should be in the world such a thing as a church of Jesus Christ. Because it's an even more remarkable thing that anyone should believe in Him, that anyone should choose to follow Him. And it demands an explanation. Not only that there should be a church, that there should be an assembly, that there should be a movement of people across history and around the world who follow Jesus, but how that is possible, how that is conceivable. That's one of the questions that I think this man Nicodemus is beginning to ask in this passage that's so well known, I think, to, to Christian people, usually for some phrases that you find in it rather than for the whole flow of the argument. One of the uh, phrases, of course, that we're not even going to come to this evening is the very famous one, God so loved the world. But in verse 9, Nicodemus is involved in this discussion with Jesus. Jesus, he views as a rabbi, a teacher. In fact, he said some very pleasant things about Jesus. He said that he thinks Jesus is a teacher come from God because of the remarkable things Jesus was doing, the signs that he was performing. And Nicodemus, who is a theologian of some weight and influence, is arguing that because of these signs and wonders that Jesus is doing, no one could do these things unless God was with him. He knew the story of Moses, who did signs and wonders. He knows the story of Elijah and Elisha, two of the great prophets of Israel, who performed signs and wonders, and he looks at these things Jesus does, and he sees the parallels with Elijah and Elisha, especially, and also with Moses, and he sees a continuum there, and he's questioning, he's asking Jesus how he should regard him, how he should process what he sees and what he's experienced, and how he should understand these things. But he isn't ready, he isn't prepared, really, for the kind of response that Jesus will give to him. Rather than commending him for his interest and regard for him, Jesus challenges him, and uh, he makes these categorical statements. For example, in verse 3, Truly, truly, amen, amen, in the Greek, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here he is talking to this right reverend doctor of theology, and he says to this man, you need a new birth if you are to see, that is, comprehend, understand. You may have a doctorate in theology, you may have multiple doctorates in theology, Nicodemus, but you cannot comprehend, you cannot see the kingdom of God in that sense, unless you are born again. He goes on to say, complicating the matter even more for Nicodemus, that he cannot even, he cannot enter the kingdom of God unless he has been born again. What does he mean by this born again? Back in the 1970s, when we came to Canada to live, there had been the election in the United States here of a president who claimed to be born again. And that put the phrase born again into the media. Everybody was talking about 
being born again. You had born again celebrities and born again artists and born again superstars. And people would ask you, are you a born again Christian? As if it was possible to be anything other than a born again Christian. What does it mean? Well, actually, it probably doesn't mean again so much as from above. The word anothen that's used in verse 3, born from above. And then a parallel expression, being born of water and spirit, which parallels from above. So the kind of birth that Jesus is talking about is a from above slash again birth and a water spirit birth. Both of those nouns governed by one referent, the birth, the birth that is from above, the birth that is water spirit. And he then goes on to criticize this teacher. Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? How is this possible? I don't understand. These things do not compute. And Jesus answered him, are you the the teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things. Now the critique that Jesus gives points, I think, to three things. We'll look at two of them this evening. The work of God, the Spirit, the work of God, the Son, and the work of God, the Father. The work of God, the Spirit. This birth, this new creation, picks up new creation language in the Old Testament, and it comes from God. That's what Jesus is emphasizing. This new creation This new birth comes from heaven. It comes from God. It comes from above. Now, there's a sense in which Israel had been prepared for this kind of idea because they'd they'd always considered themselves to be God's son. In fact, God called them that. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. So they understood the, the way in which God could adopt, if you like, a people, the Israelites, and call them his son. They understood that God could do the same with their king. Their king was called the son of God. God can adopt someone and make him his children. And this fed into an expectation that in the last days, God would adopt many people and make them his children. This new birth then language fitted into that idea of having been born into the family of God by This heavenly intervention, born from above. Similarly, the language of being born of water and spirit had a prophetic background. Because the prophets were always talking about a day in the future when the Spirit of God, which Jews always believed in, of course, from the very beginning, because He's there operating when the the earth is created. But but they, they began to expect that in the last days, the prophets would say, God would pour out His Spirit. The language is of water being poured out, pouring out of the Spirit on humanity. Joel, the prophet, spoke in those terms. And that prophecy was actually specifically fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. God poured out His Spirit in that climactic great event we know as Pentecost. And also this language, water, Spirit, is taken from Ezekiel. We saw this last time. It has to do with the deep cleansing that God does whenever he pours out his spirit on the last day. He would cleanse Israel of its idolatry and its disobedience. 
He would enable Israel to live for the glory of God. This inner cleansing, this inner renewal was to happen in the last days. That is at the end of times when Messiah would come, in the days of the Messiah. And New Testament writers regularly refer to this era you and I live in as the last day. God has in these last days spoken to us by a son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This spiritual birth was the beginning of a new creation. In the end, it points us to the final resurrection, the resurrection of the body. But this new creation begins with a spiritual resurrection that we call regeneration, the new birth, the work of God, the work of the Spirit. Now, Jesus makes this clear in a, in a phrase we mentioned but didn't really expand on back there in verse 6 last time. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Now, can I, can I just say this? That probably in verse 5, the word Spirit should be a lowercase word. Because the renewal is to be a renewal, a cleansing renewal of the Spirit of men and women. Renewed, internally spiritual renewal. But here in verse 6, we're told, who does that spiritual renewing? It is the Holy Spirit. I think that's absolutely right. To have an uppercase letter S there in verse 6. Either way, verse 6 is talking about the Holy Spirit. In fact, he contrasts, do you notice, two kinds of birth. There's natural birth and there's spiritual birth. Natural birth, that is what that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Of the Holy Spirit is spirit, lowercase. Uh, spiritual life. Don't marvel that I say to you that you must be born again. There's a background to this. Back in chapter 1 of John's Gospel, to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, children who were born not of blood, not a fleshly birth, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This spiritual birth is a God thing. It's a God work. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, who in Hebrew Scripture is the author of life, who brings life out of spiritual death, who produces a new nature, a spirit nature, so that Paul can talk about the natural person and the spiritual person. The natural person is in the life of the flesh, just the ordinary and the mundane. The spiritual person has been made alive by the Spirit of God so that they understand spiritual things. They see the kingdom of God and they enter the kingdom of God by the power of God at work in their lives. And so what Nicodemus should have understood, he should have understood this. This is what Jesus is emphasizing. How did you not see this? How can you, the teacher of Israel, not see that God has promised to produce a spiritually cleansed and renewed people? And you should have understood, Nicodemus, that this was never going to occur by natural and ordinary means. It was never going to be achieved by a kind of moral rearmament campaign. It was never going to be some ethical uh, revision or, or renewal or moralistic format or movement. Rather, this kind of change, 
he is saying to Nicodemus, has to come about by a God act in your life whereby blind people see the kingdom of God and dead people come to life and enter the kingdom of God. It's a radical work. How can this radical work happen? Well, he goes on to say, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes, so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. What's he saying? He's saying this new birth is something mysterious. It's something of God. It's not something you can tie down. It's not something you can go in for. It's not, this is not a command. You must get yourself born again. You must be born again, but you are passive. The new birth is done to you. It is a work that is applied to you. We need to be born again, but there's nothing that we can do to be born again in that sense. It is a priority, a necessity, but it's not something we can go in for. Where that happens, it's the work of God from beginning to end, the wind. You will know that the word for wind is the same word for the Holy Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes. The breath of God, the wind of God, the Spirit of God goes where He wants to go. But now we're beginning to get our heads around how this might happen in our life. You hear it. You hear it. Interestingly, wherever that word to hear, the same word, is used in John's gospel, it's used of Jesus hearing the Father, the Spirit hearing Jesus, other people hearing Jesus. It is a reversal of what Isaiah says is the hardening upon Israel. The hardening upon Israel is they cannot hear. They cannot hear. When the Spirit of God begins to move upon a person, do you see, what happens is they begin to hear Him. They begin to hear Him. I remember someone saying to me, I've been coming to, the, not this church, but another church where I was minister. I've been coming to this church for about 40 years. Maybe not as many as 40 years, but a long time. And this morning, as I was sitting there, for the first time, I heard you. I heard the gospel. Isn't that a remarkable thing? What had happened was that the Spirit of God had been moving from life to life and pew to pew and row to row and individual to individual, and that morning had opened their ears to hear. It's a remarkable work of God. You know this other word, the sound. You hear its sound. This is another interesting word because literally, do you know what it means? It means to hear the voice, to hear the voice of the wind is to hear the voice of the Spirit. It's to hear the voice of the Spirit. This word for voice is the very same voice we're told that when Jesus spoke, His voice raised the dead. <laughs> he said to Lazarus, Come forth! And Lazarus comes out of his grave and he comes forth to life. Because the voice of Jesus brings the power of God to bear. The sheep hear his voice. The sheep hear his voice and they follow him. Because when the Spirit of God is at work, 
people hear Jesus. They hear his voice. They hear beyond the voice of a mere man. And they hear the voice of Jesus calling. They hear the voice of Jesus calling them to himself. To himself. Work of God the Spirit is to enable us to hear Jesus' voice and bring us into this new world, this new world of new birth, of resurrection life. But we can, we can go deeper. For not only does it involve the work of God the Spirit, this business, it also involves the work of God the Son. No wonder this religious scholar is now a bit perplexed. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? He's incredulous. He spent a lifetime telling others about the kingdom of God. He spent a whole career studying and teaching the scriptures. And now he's being told that he could neither see nor enter the kingdom. So he's a bit skeptical. He's a bit unbelieving. And he expresses his incredulity to Jesus. And then Jesus expresses his incredulity to him. Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel? I think Jesus is getting a bit annoyed with him now. He's, he is in a holy way. God can get annoyed with us, you know. Uh, he focuses the blame where it belongs. Israel's teacher, Nicodemus, should have known better, at least theoretically, should have known better. But he had the Scriptures, and those Scriptures testified to heavenly reality. Now, Jesus' response here is interesting. He points us, I think, in three directions. First of all, to a divine witness, a divine witness, a divine revealer, and a divine savior, a divine witness, first of all. With that, Jesus stops the conversation and starts to preach. This is the end of Nicodemus. He doesn't get a word in edgeways now. That's the end. He's served his purpose. He's asked the questions, as it were. Jesus now has the floor, and he uses it. And he says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. Who is the we? Is it Jesus and his men? Well, they hadn't seen yet as clearly as Jesus had. Is it the we, Jesus and John the Baptist? It's very unlikely. Is it Jesus and the prophets? In John's gospel, it is much more likely that it is Jesus and the Father. Because again and again in John's gospel, you find Jesus saying this, the Father and I testified, the, the Father and I witness. In other words, the Father and the Son are so joined together, so united in this thing, that together they are witnessing to heavenly realities. The Father speaks from the excellent glory and says, this is my beloved Son. The Father bears witness to the Son, to the heavenly realities that are in Jesus. And Jesus bears witness to the Father. And I think that's probably the best way to understand it. I think that's better than saying that he's just aping Nicodemus. When Nicodemus said, we know, he and his scholarly friends know something, Jesus says, my Father and I know some things you better listen to, Nicodemus. Because what we have to talk about is first-hand knowledge. 
not speculative, not based on hearsay. We have something to say to you, a testimony to bear to you, a witness to give to you about heavenly realities, a divine witness. We speak what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen. And here was the problem. You, plural, you, Nicodemus, you rulers of this world, you rulers of Israel, you don't see these things. Again, this ties in with John chapter 1 where the people who should have received him didn't receive him. Maybe you're here this evening and you, you know a lot about the Bible and so on. And you've heard the testimony of the Scripture over and over again. You've read it for yourself. You've heard it read to you. But you do not receive the testimony about God. You do not do that. You will not do that. You're putting a lid on the truth. Listen on then. Because this Jesus who says that he is part of this divine witness to the truth then goes on to talk about a divine revealer. He is a revealer of the truth. Listen to what he now points to himself. Jesus draws our attention back to himself. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, notice the responsibility is you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I think the earthly things here are the things that he's just been talking about, the flesh giving birth to the flesh, even the teaching about the new birth that was in the Bible and could be clearly understood or clearly at least recognized even by someone who has not been born again. They could see it was there, that teaching was there. But he's saying to this man, Nicodemus, if you're stumbling over the need for a work of God on the scale of Ezekiel's or Jeremiah's vision, then there's no way that you'll ever grasp deeper things. You'll never get your head around the idea of the Word, the eternal Son of God being made flesh. You will never get your head around a new heavens, a new earth. You will never get your head around the idea that the Messiah must be crucified, dead and buried, before He is exalted into glory. You will never get that. Jesus says, I've come to be the revealer. I've, to, I've, come, I've come as that Jacob's ladder. You remember Jacob's ladder? There's Jacob lying asleep on a stone somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. And apparently you can see the stone that he used as a pillow because the stone he used as a pillow apparently is the stone on which Scottish kings have been crowned for over a thousand years. And uh, the English stole it and they have it down in England, but it should be back in Scotland soon. It's called the Stone of Scone, and it was supposed to be Jacob's pillow. It's a lot of nonsense, of course, but it, it, it's, a, it's a nice... It, American tourists love it, so it's, that's good. Uh, but this Jacob's ladder is the bridge between heaven and earth. Jesus actually, Jesus actually applies that picture to himself. He says, actually, what Jacob saw was him. He is the connecting ladder between heaven and, and earth, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's already said that in this gospel. He is the connecting ladder. He's come to reveal these heavenly things. So look at what he says here. Look more closely. No one has ascended into heaven 
except he who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now let's break that down. What's he saying? He's doing a negative. First of all, no one has ascended into heaven. That is, no one has ever gone to heaven and come back to tell the world about heavenly things. No one has ever died and gone to heaven so that they could come back and tell you about eternity and about those things. No one has ever done that. No one has ascended into heaven. Why? Because no one can ascend into heaven except he who, first of all, descended from heaven, that is, the Son of Man. The only one qualified to talk about heavenly things is a heavenly being. The one who's descended from heaven, the Lord from heaven. The eternal word who will become flesh. God, the one who was with God, the one who was God, the one who was in the beginning with God, who is now made flesh with our flesh. Only he can tell us about heavenly things. Therefore, only he can perfectly reveal God to us. Because unlike Mohammed and Joseph Smith, Jesus did not have an out-of-body experience in heaven. He wasn't caught up into some heavenly realm from his earthly home and then returned to tell us what he saw. No. Jesus is saying, the only one who can really tell you about these heavenly things is one who has actually come from heaven. Heaven was his home, and he has descended from heaven. Only he can go back to where he's come from. Only he can ascend back to where his original home was. He's one of a kind. He's uniquely qualified. He is the incarnate, the flesh, the enfleshed Word of God, the one-of-a-kind Son of the Father. And He's able to tell us about heaven. What is heaven? Heaven is often described in the place, as a place where God is most intensely present. We can say that God's everywhere. Of course He is. He's a spirit. He's everywhere. But heaven is where God is at home. Heaven is where God is at home. He is intensely present there. And the, the language Jesus picks here is very important. This Son of Man language. The Son of Man language in the book of Daniel, in Daniel 7, describes a heavenly being who, who is also human. He's the Son of Adam. He's a Son of Man. But He's a heavenly being first of all. He's there in the clouds of heaven which only God ever inhabits in the Scripture. He, he receives a kingdom. He receives worship, which only God ever receives in Scripture. He alone has come from heaven. He alone will ascend back to heaven. The amazing thing is that one day, the one who ascended to heaven will come back and believers, ordinary people like you and I sitting in this room this evening, will ascend with him and be exalted with him. It's a remarkable hope that we have, that when He returns, we will ascend to be with Him where He is. So there's a divine revealer, the one who comes from heaven. And then, thirdly, there's a divine Savior. We've said that this new birth is from above. It's a water-spirit birth, that is, it cleanses and renews. It's connected to who Jesus is as the revealer, the one, the Lord from heaven. And further, it is connected to the work that Jesus comes to do. Look at this. And as Moses 
lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. There's, by the way, the goal of the new birth, isn't it? New creation into a form of life that is eternal, that does not end, that goes on. Life that you will be enjoying 20 billion, billion years from tonight in all its fullness. Eternal life. Where does this picture come from, this language? Numbers chapter 21 tells a story. The children of Israel had left Egypt. They were out there. And we're told they became impatient on the way and they spoke against God and they spoke against Moses. And they said to Moses, why have you brought us out here to die? There's no food. There's no water. We loathe this worthless food. And the Lord, we're told, sent fiery serpents among them. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and they said, we've, we've obviously sinned against the Lord. We've spoken against Him and against you. And that's sin. That's wrong. Please, Moses, pray for us. Pray for us that He would take away these serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, take one, use that serpent. Make a bronze image of the serpent and put it on a pole and put the pole up in the middle of the camp and whoever looks will live. Now one of the issues, I suppose, that this raises is why a serpent? Well, way back in the beginning of the story, there was a serpent, wasn't there? Back in Genesis chapter 3, there was a serpent that got into the garden and beguiled and misled Eve and then caused Adam to sin. And through the serpent, death came. And so here are these people, rescued by God. God's doing a new thing. He's making a new humanity. These people, the, the Israelites, they're a new people altogether. They're in the desert. They sin against God. And the serpent comes and bites them, and they die. What is God's solution? It is to pin the serpent, the bronze serpent, to a pole. And of course, ultimately, that points to what? It points to Jesus. What does He do on the cross? He pins Satan. He takes our sin. He takes the curse. He destroys Satan, the serpent. He crushes him by his work on the cross. Now you see how Jesus uses this language. The Son of Man must be lifted up. That phrase in John's Gospel is used of the cross. Son of Man must be lifted up on the cross. But it's also used of heaven, of exaltation. Uh, it comes from Isaiah 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And then immediately it goes on to talk about the servant being despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and being wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. 
before it goes on to say that he will be raised from the dead. He'll divide the spoil among the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered for the transgressors, with the transgressors. In other words, Jesus gets back to heaven. Jesus gets back to his exalted station by means of the cross, that he is exalted on the cross. Because on the cross, you see, as Jesus obeys his Father, as Jesus bears his people's sin, as Jesus exhausts the Father's wrath, as Jesus satisfies the Father's just demands, on the cross, as Jesus displays mercy and justice combined. Nowhere is God the Father more pleased with His Son than He is when He's bearing our sins on the cross. In all His obedient life, even going through the blackness of that darkness of midday, midnight on the cross as He enters hell for us. The Father loves His Son. I want you to know that even when He's bearing the Father's wrath for our sins, the Father's loving His Son because His Son is doing this for you and for me and for His Father's glory. And when it's all done, when the agony is over, He says with great relief, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. He's lifted up on the cross and is lifted up to glory. And you see, what John is saying is that this Jesus is the one we need to look to to be saved. Jesus crucified. Remember the Apostle Paul says that? We preach Christ crucified. You can't avoid the shame and scoffing root that he endures. You can't avoid the cross with all its pain. But as we preach Christ crucified, looking to Him, looking to Him, trusting in Him, putting our confidence in Him, resting in Him, do you notice? We are saved. Whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. When I was growing up, the church I grew up in in the evening, we used to sing from an old hymn book. The morning was an old hymn book, but was older. The evening hymn book was an old hymn book too, but it wasn't quite as old. It was kind of late 19th century gospel hymns. One of them was this, there is life for a look at the crucified one. There is life at this moment for thee. 
And using the imagery and language that Jesus uses here of the serpent in the wilderness being lifted up and the people dying of their serpent bites and the word of Moses, which is a gospel word, look and live, look and live. It's still the good news of the gospel to say to people who are dying or dead in their sin, look and live. Look to Jesus. Believe in Him. Rest in Him. Trust in Him. And find eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank You that Your dear Son, by His own work, has opened up the gate of heaven to let us in. And tonight we pray that however distant we are, you would draw us nearer. However dead you are, that you would make us awake and alive. However deaf we are, that you would enable us to hear your truth. We pray that you would bring those who are far away near into your presence, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.